This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 7th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This week we're going to look at a few things end up happening and see what went on with a couple of different areas. First, if you are an enrolled agent, well, it turns out there's some bad news potentially on the horizon for you. The IRS issued proposed regulations this week that would increase the enrolled agent user fees uh, for the initial receipt of your, of your status or for the renewal by essentially over 100% versus the last time they were set back in 2019. They also changed the actual fee for taking the exam for each part, but that became permanent regulations that were adopted at this point. So that one goes into effect. We'll talk about, though, the one that is proposed to go into effect. We also have a case I want to discuss here that's gotten a lot of, discuss, a lot of coverage. Uh, there was a lot of discussion on social media about it in the tax area, and I think it's a good illustration of how it's very easy to overread the importance of a particular development. And so we want to discuss the Jarrett case regarding staking uh, and this week's developments. And we're going to find that both those who thought that we had a major league change in the law uh, back in early February uh, due to an IRS offer or maybe actual settlement of the case, I think that's part of the fight right now, but there was also then a follow-up this past week with a Justice Department filing that I also saw people go the other way and say, oh, it's automatic now. The Jarrett case is done. Uh, you know, it, it's been ruled official. It's like, nah, we've, we, we're over-reading on both sides. So I want to kind of go through what exactly we have in this case, where we stand, and why this case has a high likelihood of being utterly irrelevant. You know, and we talk about how it could be relevant, but most likely isn't. And also, you know, what the point is here, because I, th I think it's been lost with a lot of people who just want a, you know, kind of quick answer of yes, no. It's like, no, that's part of the reason why the case is around. Uh, yes, there is an attempt to get a yes, no answer, but it's not probably not going to be successful in getting that answer. And secondly, certainly nothing that's happened to date has given us that answer. So we'll talk about that. Finally, we'll talk about the IRS, this time bailing out some software providers uh, for those that had farmer and fisherman clients who generally need to file by March 1st if they're going to take advantage of a special rule that allows them to delay paying their taxes, have not pay any estimated taxes, and just pay with the return so long as they get the return filed and the taxes paid by March 1st. We're going to talk about how that kind of went south this year due to federal law issues on Form 7203. Now, I suspect you may have had some problems with state tax issues that may have caused you issues here, but this doesn't necessarily for the moment give us any relief there. But we'll talk about the 7203 and the proposed IRS relief, or actually the IRS promised that they plan to give relief at some point here in the future. So we'll talk about what that means. But let's go ahead and start with our first issue this week. And that is proposed regulations. Reg Project 114209-21 was published in the Federal Register. So 87 Federal Re 87 FR pages 11366 to 11371. And it was published in the Register on March 1st. So the IRS has issued now proposed regulations. These proposed regulations, because the, the fees for enrolled agents 
You know, remember, enrolled agents are one of the three categories of Circular 230 practitioners. Those three categories include anyone who is licensed as a certified public accountant by any state in the nation, uh, any member of the bar of the highest court of any state in the nation, and anybody else uh, who, and I guess and that can include attorneys and, and CPAs now. Years ago, you couldn't be an EA if you were an attorney or a CPA. The IRS position then was you already had the right to practice, so you can't go get this one. Uh, they did change that a few years ago, so now it is possible to be both a CPA or an attorney and an EA. Both are possible now. It's not like the old days where they weren't. But essentially, you take that exam, you become a, you know enrolled agent and have the right to represent clients before the IRS, therefore come under Circular 230. Now, of course, the hitch is, of course, attorneys and CPAs are governed by their applicable states or state or the bars. And in those cases, at the state level, they have fees imposed on them. And I have a fee imposed on me every two years by the state of Arizona. Uh, to, in order to renew my CPA license. And that is considered, you know, that's it. The licensing takes place at the state level, and we're granted it. And the fee is, to be honest, more than what we're going to see even under the revised numbers for an enrolled agent. But still, we have a fee. Those who become members of the bars in the various states will face various fees to keep that in line and keep their ability to practice for the highest court in the state. That's going to require certain things to happen. Well, EAs, obviously, their governing body is the IRS. That's the body that grants them the license. As such, that's the body that's going to collect the fee in order for providing that license. And that fee will go from $140, go to $140 from $67 for both the initial and the renewal for enrolled agents and for enrolled retirement plan agents. Don't worry too much about the second category. In fact, that exam's gone now. That was one of the things that got fixed in what's our permanent regs. We're there. Now, these fees were last increased in 2019. What's a little surprising is the amount of increase this time. Again, in theory, they go back, they figure the costs involved of running the program, they divide that by the number of people they expect to service, and that then comes up with the cost. That's how they're specified to do this because they are granting a right, a privilege that is not otherwise available uh, to people in general. You know, most people, you know, since you're being a enrolled agent, grant you a right that's not available to the population. So that special right means that you have to bear the cost of you as a whole group. You have to bear the cost of providing that special right to you, you know, all the all the backup mechanisms in place to get you that right. Now, what's interesting about this, though, was, you know, the mechanics of computing this should be the same, but now the costs are double. And again, you can read the details in the proposed regs about why that's there. They'll explain some of the issues, but clearly it's gotten people a little bit worked up. And I would agree that probably $140 over two years, it's difficult to say that that's going to put anybody out of business, but it's also just significantly higher than it was. And I should say it also raised an interesting question about what's going to happen the next time the IRS uh, sets the paid preparer fees. You know, is that also going to take a big jump? Because remember, being an EA, being a CPA, being an attorney does not mean you're allowed to be a preparer yet, right? That, that's a different issue. And for paid preparers, that's a separate licensing program 
and we pay a fee for that. And you recall the IRS got the go-ahead that they could impose the fee for preparing a return. So bottom line, we may see some surprises there. Just watch for that one in the future, again, at that point. The other thing that happened on the same day they issued this on March 1st, they published final regulations in the Federal Register. And these final regulations uh, essentially set the uh, fee for each part of the uh, basically special enrollment examination for enrolled agents to $99. And that's found in Treasury Decision 9962. And again, published the same version of the Federal Register, this time in pages uh, 11295 to 11297 setting these fees and removing the fee for the uh, exam for enrolled retirement plan agents because essentially there is no such exam anymore. So, yeah, there is no user fee for that exam any longer. Makes sense that it's there. Okay, next up, let's go ahead and let's talk about the case, the Jarrett case, right? This is a case that got a lot of coverage in the very first part of February. Right. It was interesting then if you're involved in the concept of staking. Right. This case got a lot of notoriety in February dealing with the question of are, are amounts received by a taxpayer who's involved in staking for cryptocurrencies that have staking options. Is that considered taxable income? Now, we have a ruling on mining. Right. And mining. Uh, which if you're not into cryptos, we can explain the difference in the two. Um, bottom line, the key difference in the two when one does staking, you essentially pledge a portion of the coins you hold uh, for you to be considered part of the group that will approve future transactions to the blockchain. When you're in mining, you have to do a heavy-duty, majorly computational and heavy um, bit of work to prove that you have the right to win the right to put something on the blockchain, right? And the theory being that this effectively gives us serious workers. You know, the work towards solving the problem builds the blockchain, and it it basically assures that you won't try to take over the consensus, uh, because if you could take over the consensus and set it, then really the whole blockchain thing kind of falls apart immediately if you have control of it. So. We won't get into the details about why that's true. It's true. Staking, though, is meant to deal with the fact that the old lots of heavy work, that work was getting harder and harder and harder because that's how it's set up to go. And it was becoming highly inefficient as well as a way to do it. So we got this concept of staking as an alternative. Now, some people have claimed from day one that the IRS was wrong about the mining rule, that it shouldn't be considered income until it's converted to uh, some other form. Uh, if it's just additional, if it's just coins held in the form you created, that that's really just inventory you've created, you haven't sold it yet, we can get to that whole theory. But nevertheless, there's been this fight, and staking had no such issue. What the Jareds did was they filed a tax return, and they filed the, this return, and they actually paid tax on staking income. Then they turned around later and filed an amended return, a claim for refund, asking for a refund of that amount. Now, the IRS initially denied the claim, or they didn't take action on the claim, actually is what happened, which is not unusual today. And that might have been part of the game, too, especially since, uh, given the current state of affairs at the IRS, 
there's a really good chance they won't get around to ruling on your refund claim for six months, which gives you the automatic ability to take it into district court, which is apparently what happened here. And so they, they sued for refund. And the theory of that, of course, is they wanted to go to court. They then want to get a court ruling on whether or not the staking is taxable. Now, the one negative with doing this district court route is that it's going to go to a single district court located, in this case, in Tennessee. And that's probably not going to be a must precedential value if a court in Tennessee said it's not considered income. Uh, district court cases generally are, you know, they're, they're considered the most, shall we say, unreliable uh, style of case, and they're not really binding in terms of presidential value. They're advisory at best uh, for future cases, and the tax court wouldn't be bound by it. And the IRS, at least outside of Tennessee, for pretty much sure, would not be bound by it either. You know, you really couldn't go and so it wouldn't help your clients sitting in California or Texas or any other state, you know, if it stayed there. But if that case was appealed, so in a backdoor way, you might think the Jarrett's hoped they'd lose at the district court level. Then they would be in charge of filing the appeal. Their theory is they would take that appeal up to the Sixth Circuit. As I recall, Sixth Circuit runs Tennessee. And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals would then issue a ruling. If the Sixth Circuit were to rule, again, theoretically not binding outside the Sixth Circuit, but that gets way more attention. So the idea is we're trying to set up a test case. We want a ruling, and we're hoping we get a ruling that says this stuff is not taxable. And we're saying all of that, well, why would a taxpayer do this? Because the money involved isn't that great. Well, the taxpayer is being funded by the uh, basically by an industry group in the staking area. So in essence, there, there is a group of individuals involved in staking that have cryptocurrencies types that are being that were staking works that they want this ruling to say it's not income. And so they were trying to get that ruling and trying to force the IRS's hand. It's important to understand that background before we start looking at what this really means. You know, is any of this relevant at the moment? Well, let's go ahead and say, so this case got a lot of notoriety back in February. And let me see if I can bring up my correct. There we go. And this is an article, which actually is a pretty good article on Coindesk, <clears throat> which is referenced in our materials. Uh, that, that talked about this. It was one of the better. There were some bad articles up there, too. I'll be very honest. Uh, but uh, this particular author, Cheyenne Ligon, and Coindesk's website has done a very good job generally of covering this, especially since tax issues are not necessarily their main area of focus. So I thought did a good job in this area. And this particular case talked about this couple being offered this uh, refund, etc. Talked about the Joshua case. Uh, talked about what they're doing. They filed it. And what's neat, too, is that immediately the author of this piece makes it clear that this case was funded in part by the Proof of Stake Alliance and also notes that the IRS did not respond to the claim for refund. So as tax people to understand the background, you now know a couple of things. First, this was not the IRS ever said they weren't going to pay the refund. This was one they jumped straight to court. Now, the amount of dollars involved in this case is relatively small. I think we'll get to the number here, but something like $2,700. So it's a relatively small amount of cash. 
obviously would not pay to go to court. So why would you go to court? Well, you're going to court because, not because the math makes sense, because it doesn't. Makes much more sense to wait for the IRS to rule on this and maybe they'll pay you your refund. Um, because you're going to chew up more than $2,700 just with legal fees going to the district court. But see, we want this funded. Oh, I guess it was 3793s that it was, right. What happened was in December, um, the IRS took action to pay the refund. You'll notice this. In December, attorneys for the IRS wrote Jarrett and his wife's attorneys to inform them the IRS had been authorized and directed to schedule an overpayment plus statutory interest. Now, that's also an interesting quote, and I'm, you know, I'm, in essence, there, there's a lot of good things done in reporting this article, and I say it because there was a lot of bad stuff out there. The, the quote here is important. Note, it didn't say they offered that refund. It said they're making the refund. Essentially, they're authorized and directed to schedule the payment. So the money's coming out now. Now, this is bad news for the Jarrett's. You might think, why is it bad news? They're getting the money back. Well, yeah, but they're not getting a ruling. Okay, that, that was the big issue. So they're going to be running that ruling. And the problem was when this first came up, a lot of sites, especially sites that did crypto, but even some sites that were more tax-oriented, I guess, in general, or discussion groups like on Twitter, uh, they started saying, oh, the IRS has changed their position now. This is a major issue. No, it wasn't. As that article points out, in essence, the taxpayers did not. You know, in essence, they're, they're trying to treat that as an offer and turn it down. And so they rejected it. So it's not as if the IRS said it's taxable, because if they had, the taxpayers would not be rejecting this. So why did it get coverage? Also, it first, it actually was given, as the article points out, this letter went to them in December, but we're suddenly seeing this in early February. Why? Should be obvious. Um, somebody went to the press. Now, we can guess who that somebody is, because every article I saw quoted the same, you know, the interim executive director of the Proof of Stake Alliance, which was funding this, was, you know, she was heavily quoted in each of these articles. Presumably, she got on the phone and she started contacting these groups, uh, trying to build up some momentum for this and also, therefore, helping their organization. So, you know, she pushed this out. So in February, it's pushed out at the same time they were turning it down. So that was kind of interesting. Now, again, while the article I just pointed you to has more than enough clues in it for those of us who understand tax to see exactly what happened and understand exactly what was important, you saw a lot of posts on Twitter stating that IRS rules, staking's not taxable, or this is a major issue, or this is a major deal. No, nah, it's irrelevant. And in fact, as uh, you know, Cheyenne wrote another article about a week later about tax professionals saying, hey, guys, don't, don't go crazy on this. It's not a big deal. And in that article, uh, she quoted a individual, right, in this case, um, that was going to be, you know, that talked about how this was not going to work. Hopefully I get my person. Oh, I see this. Yes. Uh, Seth, Seth Wilkes, director of TaxBit. Uh, who basically is involved in taxation of Bitcoin, he pointed out, no, what's happening here is pretty obvious. They're trying to moot the case. Okay. Now, he pointed this out when those articles came out. They're trying to moot it. They're just going to pay it. 
They're trying to stop the case from going forward, and they'll probably succeed in doing so. You know, it was pretty clear that what's going on here. You know, the IRS wants the case to go forward. However, this week, the Justice Department filed the motion to dismiss, and their motion to dismiss argues that the case is moot. Okay. Now, back in early February, we had a lot of people going overboard the first way, saying, oh, the world's changed. Uh, it's not taxable. There's no problem, right? We're, we're not, you know, in essence, we can take the staking income off of all returns. Okay, no, that, that wasn't what we had. We didn't have enough to do that. You still have to go back to your standard law, prior rulings, and try to figure out what's there. And my guess is still today, the IRS will say it's not fundamentally different from mining. And we know their position on mining, so you're going to have to litigate the issue, you know, if the IRS challenges you. But as I say, now suddenly with the Justice Department filing this week, I then saw post stating that, oh, see, the Jarrett case is irrelevant uh, because, you know, the government has not, because it's now been, they've now ruled that it's taxable. It's like, no. Now, the Justice Department didn't say anything. They're taking no position in this statement intentionally, about whether or not the amount is taxable. They're saying this is a court case. The court case essentially asked for a refund of just under $4,000. And remember, when you go to court, we're going to court not because this gets you to get on your soapbox and force the court to write law. You know, that, that's not the point of this. The court is a venue meant to settle disputes. And for a dispute to be able to go to court, a couple of things have to be true, right? One of the things that has to be true is, first thing is, there, there's got to be some remedy the court can offer that would solve the problem. And so this case went claiming a refund of 3800 of you know, basically just under $4,000. And that was their claim damage, okay? The, basically, the relief the court can offer is to have the IRS pay that to them or pay some sum, whatever they might decide was the actual amount that should have been there. That's the relief the court could offer. The IRS now, by transferring that over, the argument becomes there is no relief at this point the court is authorized to offer. I can't just say, hey, district court in Arizona, you know, I, I want you to rule right now because I'd like to know the question of staking and is the IRS right on mining. I want you to rule right now whether they could do that. I just can't go down. I could try to go down and file that complaint, you know, file the, the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court in Arizona. Uh, I'm going to be tossed out of court because, again, there is no, you know, the court's not really set up to do that kind of ruling. They're set up to grant relief. I have no damages. Since I have no damages, I have no standing to sue. And what they're going to say here is you've lost your standing. Now, as I said, the problem is a lot of people took this as saying the case had been dismissed. Well, I think there's a reasonable chance it will be. It hasn't happened yet. The Justice Department cannot unilaterally dismiss the case. That would be up to the, essentially, that, that's up to the court as to whether the case can be dismissed. And if the case is dismissed, then fine. You know, that, that'll be the court will do the dismissal. And that could be appealed. And there may be a reasonable chance that, you know, the point of sale alliance or the point, not point of sale. Uh, like I said, yeah, we'll, we'll see. The proof of staking alliance, 
there's a good chance that they will come in and say, hey, guys, you know, you know, we, we want to go to court that this should have been allowed to go to trial and we should have gotten a ruling on this. Will they succeed? I don't know. But that's going to be the point. It really doesn't matter. The reality is, for this case to make a difference, the difference that the Proof of Staking Alliance wants it to make, the following things probably would have to happen. First, the case would have to go to trial, right, or at least go to a decision from the judge. It could be stipulated in the judge issuing a decision based solely on the law. Uh, it would then have to, you know, then assuming whichever way it went, for it to have any impact outside of this one district in Tennessee, and more specifically for it to have a chance of picking up really a realistic chance of being a nationwide issue, we would then need the, the losing party in the middle district of Tennessee to appeal the case to the Sixth Circuit, and then win at the Sixth Circuit. Now, in their dreams, the, you know, proof of, or basically the proof of staking alliance would probably love for the case, then go to the Supreme Court and have the U.S. Supreme Court in a 9-0 unanimous decision tell us staking is not income. Okay, that's unlikely to happen, but that would be the best case scenario. We are so far from even the most minimal. The most minimal benefit would be it goes to trial and the court in Tennessee rules on this issue, and it would be the one ruling we'd have and may or may not be important, but other courts would have to judge that, and definitely the service would not have to respect it, so you'd probably have to go ahead and keep challenging them in other jurisdictions. Doesn't mean they can't respect it. Uh, we've had district court cases set things, like the major case we have for what is a principal residence for purposes of the 121 exclusion is a district court case here in Arizona. The IRS won on the case and nobody else, and it's been referenced now multiple times. But the problem with the district court case is it's going to have to come out there, be ruled upon, and then other judges, including probably most importantly, either the tax court or a court of appeals, will specifically cite the reasoning in that case to justify their decision. If all that happens, we're good. If all that doesn't, we're not so good. And so we're kind of stuck on that issue. So as I say, the real problem is too many people overread this. If you thought this, if you thought right now, you know that staking is taxable because of the Joshua decision. It's not really been a decision. That's the other problem. There is no decision here. Or you believe it isn't taxable because of the Joshua case. If you believe the Joshua case matters at this point in time, one iota, you're probably wrong. Okay. Right now, it doesn't. It does have the potential to become important, but my guess is the potential it becomes the crucial case in all of this is probably a 10% chance or so at best. And I think that's probably even overestimating its likely importance. It is a Hail Mary shot. Uh, you know, they're trying it. Uh, maybe they'll get a court to agree that they can get a ruling on this. That's going to be the key. And if they do get a ruling, you know, and they win, then the back of their mind, they're going to hope like mad the IRS appeals the ruling, right? Or they're going to try to stick it other places. But definitely, you know, as I say, kind of interestingly, they might actually be hoping to lose at the district court and then win at the Sixth Circuit because that would be way more useful for them than winning at the district court and having the IRS say, well, we're not going to appeal that. We're, you know, we're not going to take it up on appeal. You know, we're just simply going to leave it as is. So bingo. So anyway, just be aware of that. 
By the way, we also got an announcement from the IRS late in the week. This came in on the 3rd, on Thursday. Uh, there's been a little problem we've had with Form 7203, right? And so the IRS had an update regarding Form Electronic Filing Challenges in Connection with Form 7203, S-Corporation, Shareholder Stock, and Debt Basis Limitations. Now, that headline tells you nothing about what this really is. This is relief for farmers and fishermen, okay? That's the key issue here, right? This is it. The key issue became that the IRS requires Form 7203 for many, if not most, S-Corporation shareholders. Uh, we've been discussing this issue all last year, right? We've discussed it multiple times. And what this is, assuming I get the right one up, yes, I did. This is that Form 7203 the IRS issued, right? You remember this, and the draft went final, as you recall. But that form has to be attached to the return. And as you may remember, it says, if you're filing a deduction for your share of an aggregate loss, you receive a distribution, dispose of stock, receive a loan repayment for the S-Corporation, you have to check the box. We've always had to check recently on Form seven on Schedule E, the Schedule Instructions, and attach Form 7203 to your return. Okay, now, that's been known for a long time that 7203 is coming. In fact, it was over a year ago that we first got the warnings from the IRS that they were going to be doing this form. And at least a few very early draft copies snuck out before the IRS decided they shouldn't be giving draft copies to people. I, I got one, uh, actually. I got one the first day by asking. Uh, and then like a day later, they decided that wasn't a smart idea because these were meant to be internal use only. But the form really didn't change. I mean, we knew, and I'm sure that the major software vendors had seen that you know, even if they had to get a leaked copy from somebody else, they had seen that form. Not really leaked. It was They were offered it up in the Federal Register. Then they changed their mind. But I got it while it was on offer. So I took it. <laughs> I took it and went with it. So we have that. So you'll see a lot. If you have an S corporation, if you're 1040, this is a form for the 1040. So if your client has an S corporation, interested in an S corporation, and you know, they have any of those distributions, dispose of stock, receive a loan repayment, they've got to attach Form 7203 to their return. Well, the problem came very simply that a lot of tax software vendors uh, weren't really ready uh, for this. And why would that be a problem? Well, it's a problem because there is a you know, the issue becomes there is a problem here. There is a March 1st filing date rule. Now, if you have farmer or fisherman clients, you know about this rule. But just in case you don't, um, the IRS has information about this in the actual notice. So let me go back and let me go back and we'll try to bring up. I get this right. Hey, I was good on all of this now. And let me bring this up for those of you watching on on the broadcast, I'll bring it up on the screen. Those on audio, obviously, you're not seeing this, but I'll tell you right now. Uh, you know, it tells us very simply and explains this, this is a four paragraph notice to put out. But part of it is they explain qualifying farmers and fishermen are those that were not subject to an addition to tax for failing to pay the required estimated tax installment payments by January 15th, 2022, if they file the returns and pay the full amount of tax for that return as payable by March 1st. Yeah, the weird part is we get under Section 6654. Generally, farmers and fishermen only have to pay a single estimate. It's the last one on January 15th. However, they can even skip that one if they file the return by March 1st. So definitely if you have a lot of farmer clients who want to hold on to their cash and who want to go ahead and get that extra month and a half too, 
they tend to file on March 1st. Okay, well, herein comes our problem. As was noted, and this is here, there are third-party software providers. This is the key part. There were of a third-party software issue affecting qualifying farmers and fishermen, right? And the problem has been, uh, you know, they've had challenges in filing 7203. Well, the challenges have been very simple. They weren't ready to. Now, I don't know for sure how many providers this impacts, and I won't say more than to say that I know of at least one, at least a couple of people reported me that one major provider apparently attempted to, shall we say, kind of bareface their way through this and just force their way through by refusing to do 7203 this year because software providers have a lot to do. Remember, the IRS had the 7203, they had the K1, K2, right? So those are there. Well, that's pretty standard federal ads. But remember all those states that added pass-through entity taxes and now have brand new state forms and brand new state returns even that didn't exist before, all of which need to get running right now. And the software companies are under pressure. Then you have states like Arizona that added this thing called the small business income tax, which is also a whole brand new return, right? Uh, elective, and it also all needs to get fixed. So they're under tremendous pressure, have a lot of code to write, and again, almost certainly could not go out and just buy a lot of part-time staff to come in and write that code and have any confidence whatsoever. So they're under pressure, and it appears at least one vendor tried to just keep using the plain paper basis forms they'd done the previous years, attaching that to the returns and then hoping to essentially tell the IRS, well, you know, we're, we're kind of big and, you know, we, we do a lot of this stuff. So you, you guys ju just need to, you know, follow our rules, you know, go ahead and go with us and allow us this relief. Well, it turns out they didn't get that relief and apparently became aware they weren't going to get that relief and then started scrambling trying to get 7203 out. The problem became that we're ready to file this thing by March 1st. Therefore, if you were a farmer or fisherman, you had a couple of bad choices. You could either file on paper, potentially filling this form in on your own and attaching it to the paper return and sending that in. Well, that's bad because, as we know, the IRS has a huge backlog of returns. The IRS discourages filing on paper now. And, you know, we're probably, you know, your return will be you'll get that crazy notices. You'll have all those things next year. It won't be filed. If you have to prove filing for some purpose for a loan, you won't be able to do so because that'll take over a year to get posted. It'll just be a disaster. So your alternative, the second alternative was to go ahead and, you know, and say, well, I'm going to file the return, but now it's March 1st. I can't really, you know, my payment now is going to be late and I've got to wait for the return anyway. And so if I send in there, I'm going to get hit with the underpayment of estimated tax payment. So, yeah, that's why we end up with this problem. So because of those vendors being unable to file the return, okay, those vendors are unable to file the return. What we end up with is the IRS is going to be looking to trying to help solve the problem, right? And the solution is going to be to grant relief. Now, the relief they're going to grant, going back to the actual notice, is they haven't really told us yet what this is. 
They say due to the challenges, the Treasury Department and the IRS intend to issue a notice providing penalty relief for qualifying farmers and fishermen filing Form 7203 if they electronically file their 2021 return and pay in full any tax due by April 18th or by April 19th for qualifying farmers and fishermen who live in Maine or Massachusetts. Get the, that all end of tax season routine. Now, we don't know yet how that's going to come. Will it come as a notice? Will it come as an announcement? Will it come on a website? We have no idea what that is yet. We still don't have it. Also, what will be the parameters? Will we have to show that we essentially were using software that didn't allow us to do 7203? Or is this going to be open to everybody? And what if it turns out that we, you know, it turns out that, wait, well, really, we didn't need to do 7203 um, because turns out that we didn't really meet the criteria. If we voluntarily do it, will that qualify? I mean, we've got lots of questions left. But if you have a farmer or fisherman, you were unable to meet March 1st because your software provider could not handle 7203 by March 1st, so you couldn't electronically submit the return, uh, there will be relief coming. That's probably the good news to come from this. I love how they close out the thing, too, by telling us, if you filed by March 1st, this doesn't impact you. Don't worry about it, right? Ignore it. Uh, I don't know what I don't know if those people they those people are going to now want to be paid money, you know, give us some interest because we, we didn't get a hold of it till April, so now we want money. I don't know what the theory is, but in any event, the IRS felt that they had to tell people that yeah, if you're in those categories, this doesn't really count. So, you know, let, let's go ahead and say that's not going to work. So yes, we will be seeing that relief. We'll watch it come forward. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of. March the 7th, 2022, Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you, as always, uh, by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. Um, I do follow along on the uh, Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, right? And also check on, in Washington, I should say, and watch on Idaho's uh, postings as well, a few things there, see what goes on, so you can... Check, check out there if you want to, uh, you know, if you're a member of one of those societies, you want to post something, go. And if I can think I can be helpful, I may post a response. Uh, the other thing involved, uh, we do also take email, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. If you have a question about anything we talked about this week, be aware of that. Our updates are on the website at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. Uh, we are heading into next week. We'll be facing the first deadline coming up, right? Uh, you know, it'll be, we'll be sitting on the 14th. Right, Tuesday the fifteenth will be our our deadline for the uh, pass through entities to be filed. So we'll have that piece of fun. We'll see if anything else comes out about that. Uh, by the way, no K two K three K three relief came out this week. So as I told, as I said last week, if you're going to file those returns on time, you better have been working on the K two K three. If you're going on extension, then you can wait and see if we get further relief. But not really something we see right now. Oh, I should mention one thing I did not mention. Uh, a case that came out this week that some of you may have heard about. There, there was a major case that came out dealing with uh, the issue. I think it was Vance case, was it? Uh, that is a split dollar life insurance case. It is an interesting case. I thought about looking into it, but then I also decided that for the vast majority of people listening to this, you're not going to have a client who has an estate anywhere near the size to make this make sense because you really need to have some decent estate numbers in play. And so just because I thought it'd be a highly technical issue that honestly will probably affect very, very, very few people. I didn't talk about it, but if you are into that, you should check the cases out this week because that is probably an important case. If you're doing, if you're doing estate planning, I'd certainly take a look at it. 
Otherwise, we'll be back here next week uh, talking about whatever that might come up in this week, see what else happens. It's certainly been an, an exciting tax season, shall we say, even if not one we're too thrilled with. Uh, so hopefully we'll come back next week, see if anything else neat has happened, or hopefully it's nice, quiet, and easy to go forward. And we'll be here on current federal tax developments.